Our study is going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I had a real kind of humbling experience yesterday as we were driving down to Wheaton um, to visit my old college. Hadn't been there in a couple years. And Julie was asking me as we were driving down the Tri-State, she said, how many years has it been since you started your freshman year in college? And, and I had to admit that it had been 31 years since I walked onto that campus a lot lighter in weight and with hair that was a lot darker and really feeling a lot more cool than I do now, but that's okay. I really wasn't that cool, but it, you know, as I thought about that, it seemed hard to believe that that much time had passed. But I tried to play it off and I tried to, you know, maintain some composure that I'm getting old and I, I said to her, yeah, that, that's true, it's been 31 years, but what did I know at 18? And she said pretty quickly, a lot. You just weren't dampened by the world. And I thought about that statement as I kept driving, and, and I tried to remember the feelings of kind of unrealized potential and idealism about the future when I walked onto that campus in 1982 and how different the world was politically, how different it was morally, how differently I viewed church and ministry and, and the work of the gospel, how uh, there were people I hadn't met yet, people who have uh, either blessed my life greatly and encouraged me or who have kind of hurt me or injured me in some way. There, there's no way we can be unaffected by our relationships and experiences, right? They, they shape us. They, they dictate in many ways who we become. And it has a cumulative effect on how we think and how we feel and how we act and how we relate. And it can even hinder our spiritual maturation and our faith. If we allow those experiences, especially the ones that are negative, especially the ones that that harm us in some way emotionally or intellectually or, or spiritually, if we allow those experiences to adversely impact us, if we allow them to to draw us away from the Lord and develop a negative attitude toward the Lord's provision in some way. Now, as I thought through that, just in a span of five or ten minutes, it really brought my mind to the Apostle Paul. And I, I started to think about uh, his ministry and how he had written some of the most profound and some of the most encouraging words of Scripture while he was sitting in a jail cell. He's, he's not in, you know, a club fed, one of those, you know, nice prison camps that they say some prisoners don't even want to leave to go back to the real world because it's, it's so settled. This was, this was a horrible jail cell in Rome. He was physically, emotionally tired. His health was failing. He couldn't see very well. He, he, he knew that within a matter of days, maybe months, that he would be executed. There was no question that he was not going to get out. This was not something where, where he thought he would uh, be delivered and go back out into Asia Minor and visit churches. and minister. There, there was no sense of that. And not only did he face that reality, which was harsh enough, but, but he was also physically lonely and he was emotionally hurt, primarily because some of the people that he had had as disciples or some of the people that he had ministered to or ministered with had turned away from the Lord. And they had slandered his character in the process of turning away from the Lord. Paul was not the most popular person on the face of the earth. In fact, many, many people disliked him. Some people really hated him. He, he was attacked. He was stoned. He was 
threatened. Uh, he was kicked out. He was put on a boat. I mean, a lot of experiences. That Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. Paul's kind of free associating here, thinking about some of the people. And he goes from saying to Timothy, here's what I need when you come visit me to, wait a second, what about that guy? So that's where we see in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he's vigorously opposed our teaching. And my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Great Priscilla and Aquila, his good friends who were tent makers who he administered with, and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be to you. Now, here's a listing of personal acquaintances that that Paul had met and ministered to and ministered with uh, in his ministry. And he's writing now to Timothy, who was his young protege in Ephesus. Timothy, who he put a lot of confidence in for the future of the advancement of the gospel. But Timothy, at this point, is really struggling. We know that from the writing, first part of the uh, of the book, chapter 1. Timothy's struggling. He's, he's wrestling with the weight of ministry. He's wrestling with people that are opposing his ministry. And, and at this point, Timothy's had it. I mean, he, he's to the point where he's saying, Paul, I can't do it anymore. I've had enough. It's wearing me out. It's wearing out my family. I, 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 I think I'm done. And Paul writes to him and says, Timothy, you need to be strong. You need to remember the calling from the Lord. You need to now not focus on yourself, but be sobered. Be stirred by the calling. Be stirred by the state of the world to the extent that now, Timothy, your heart needs to be refreshed. Come on now. You need to get going. This is a real kind of cheerleading book. Get going, Timothy. Come on. You, you need to stop, stop, as we used to say, stop your whining and, and come on, get yourself together. Quit crying. Quit thinking about yourself. We, we've got work to do. And Timothy, I'm in jail. I can't get to you. But, but you need to understand that there is a lot of work to do here. If you're ever discouraged or you're ever kind of disheartened, this is a great book to read and study. Because it will lift your spirits and it will give you a greater sense of the work of the Lord. Now, right as he starts chapter 4, going down about verse 6, he says to Timothy, I, I, I want to uh, give a summary of my life because... Right now, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I know I'm done. I'm not getting out of here. And I've served the Lord faithfully, and I have fought the fight, and I've finished the course, and now at this point, Timothy, it's, it's, it's not, well, what will happen in two years? I know I'm going to be in heaven soon. I know the Lord's going to be waiting for me there with a crown of righteousness, and I'm excited by that. But, but before I die, I need you to come visit me. I'm alone. I've been deserted by a lot of people. I had to send Tychicus out. Only, only Luke's here with me. Uh, bring Mark. Come on, bring some encouragement to me. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here by myself. And when you come, bring some copies of the Word. I want to, I want to read it again. I want to, I want to get filled in my spirit with, with the Word of God. And then he lists all these people that have intersected his ministry. Some have been an encouragement. Some have strengthened him. And others have been a disappointment or they've been 
detrimental. We've all got a list like this, don't we? We could all sit down today and say, those who encourage me and those who have depressed me. And here's the encouraging people, and those are the people I'm probably still in contact with that just every time I talk to them, I just, I just get excited about the Lord and I get encouraged in my faith. But these other people, if I run into them at the grocery store, I, I may need to switch aisles. Anybody do that? I think I need bread now, even though I have nine loaves in the cart. I need some more bread. Some people just, just are a source of joy. They, they just strengthen us. They just, encourage us, and others make us sad or frustrated because they've damaged us. Now Paul here lists 17 people by name. He lists a lot of others that, that he doesn't name, but, but 17 people, he says, I want to talk to you about these people, Timothy, and how they've intersected my lives. But I really just want to focus this morning for our study on three of them. Three of the ones that he mentions in a negative way. And why do we focus on the ones that are negative? Why not talk about the ones that have been positive? Well, because how Paul reacts to them and his attitude toward them and what he is able to say about the Lord because of them is instructive to us. Look at them. There are three of them. Chapter three, uh, excuse me, chapter four, verse ten. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Verse fourteen. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. And verse 16, at first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Now, it's not hard to see the personal pain there, but we also need to see the spiritual anguish. Because Paul, who loved the ministry so much and loved the gospel so much, sees people that he has worked with and ministered with and, and told the gospel to and taught, he sees them deserting the Lord and behaving in an unholy way. And, and intentionally causing damage to the work of ministry. He mentions Demas first. In the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon, which were both written before 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last book, second to last book that Paul wrote. So in Colossians and Philemon, a couple years before, he had written those books and he mentions Demas. And he says Demas is helpful and Demas is growing in the Lord. He's, he's useful in the work of ministry. But now something happened over one or two years. Demas's heart got hardened. And he started to become worldly. And he started to crave what the world has to offer instead of fa- staying faithful to the Lord. And that was just heartbreaking to Paul. Paul had written so much about putting off sin and, and, and not being controlled by the world and being faithful to the Lord and standing firm in his convictions. He even says at one point, look at me. I, I've been able to do it. You can do it too. But, but Demas had walked away. One of his disciples had become spiritually calloused. There's nothing that's sadder for a pastor than seeing a person who was walking with the Lord become callous to the Lord. Then he says, Alexander the coppersmith has done me harm. We don't know the full situation with him, but we know that it was very volatile and very personal. Alexander was a person who rejected Jesus Christ. He had strongly opposed the Word of God. We don't know if he had presented himself as a believer at some point and kind of played that game to to challenge Paul or whether he had rejected Christ from the start. But, but either way, he had done great damage. And that was not unsurprising to Paul, but, but it, it hurt him because he had such a heart for the gospel and he had such a heart uh, for people to surrender their lives to Christ. 
Paul loved the Word of God. And he loved the Lord. And he loved ministry. And he loved telling people, Christ died for your sins. And Christ rose again. And if you surrender your heart to Him, that God will change you and transform you forever. Paul loved that message. So here's somebody that's violently uh, opposing that. Somebody that is taking him on and saying, that's rubbish. How dare you tell people that? You're full of lies. Can you imagine how intellectual Paul was and how he tried to deal with that? So there's Demas and then there's Alexander. And third, we see that there was a general abandonment. This is in verse uh, 16. By other believers. When Paul is arrested for preaching the gospel boldly, they deserted him. How many times had he stood for them? How many times had he encouraged them when they were down or prayed for them when they were weak or sent a letter to them when they couldn't figure it out and they weren't wise and they were clueless and Paul would write a letter and say, here, here's what the Lord's doing. Be encouraged, be strengthened. And now when he is, is uh, in a tough situation and he's arrested, you would think that everybody would say, hey, you've helped us in the past, we're going to stand by you. But nobody does. And they desert him. And they leave him by himself. You ever felt that kind of betrayal? It hurts, doesn't it? And we sense it in Paul's words here that he, he is still alone. Now again, when those things happen to us, what is the normal human reaction? What, what would be what we would do immediately? Because when we get hurt or we're betrayed or we're challenged by somebody or somebody damages us emotionally in some way, it's very easy then to become jaded, right? To, to kind of become cynical about life and to say, well, this is pretty typical. It's happened before and I see this is kind of the state of the world. Nobody's faithful anymore. And we, we say those sentences to ourselves. That's, that's at the least. At the worst, we get bitter and we get angry. And, and that can extend out to how we view the Lord. We start to say, well, Lord, why didn't you protect me? And why didn't you help me? And why are you allowing me to go through these things? Many times we slip into that way of thinking. We transfer the betrayal of people into a conclusion that somehow the Lord has betrayed us. And the devil loves to exploit that kind of emotional exposure into the assumption that somehow our Lord doesn't care. And we get hurt and we draw inward, and we feel for ourselves, justifiably so. And then we start to say, well, Lord, I thought you were going to be sufficient, and I thought you were going to help me, and I thought you were going to protect me and watch over me and provide for me. Why didn't you do that? Think of the thoughts that Paul could have had. Yet, look at the text. He shows none of those characteristics. In fact, just the opposite. Even in jail alone, knowing his earthly life is going to end soon, he's not cynical, he's not contemptuous, even knowing how unfair the whole situation was and having experienced emotional knife wound after emotional knife wound everywhere he went. He doesn't slander other people. He doesn't build himself up and say, well, but you know what, I'm Paul and and I've done my job. And even knowing the damage to ministry, he doesn't become fatalistic. Timothy's already got that covered. Instead, Paul confidently relies on five important spiritual truths that encourage him and strengthen his resolve even more. And whatever you are going through this morning, whatever I am going through this morning, 
whether it's spiritual warfare, whether it's some kind of relational challenge, whether it's it's some kind of personal crisis that's attacking your joy and attacking your contentment. If we will know and trust these five principles, it will drastically change our attitude and it will change our approach to the problem. Because listen, our problems are only for a short time, right? Our problems are only for a short time. There is a season in which we deal with difficulty. But here's the truth on the other side. The Lord's presence and sufficiency never ends. How many know that's true this morning? The Lord's presence and sufficiency never ends. Oh, I got problems. I've had problems all through my life. You're like, you sure do. We all have problems. We all have seasons. We'll have times we look at it and go, wow, that was just such a trial and that was difficult and boy, I was struggling. But you know what? That time ended. And then there's another situation that comes up. Maybe you're in it right now and you're going, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what the next step is. Listen, the Lord's presence and sufficiency has always been there. He's never walked away and said, oh, you're on your own. I don't care. I got things to do. Do you know how many people I have to take care of? Do you know how many people are praying to me? I, I, I can't even manage all the, all the words. Come on, I'm just, I, and, and I've got to keep the universe going. Can you imagine the Lord saying that? I can't even balance several things at the same time. The Lord's managing the whole universe, and He's listening to every thought, every prayer. He knows every molecule of water out there in Lake Michigan. He knows it all. And when you're hurting, He's there. And when you're struggling, he's there. And when you have a need, he's sufficient. But here's what the enemy does. He says, that's not true. You need to stop waiting on the Lord to help you. He's not your very present help in time of trouble. If he really loved you, how many have heard this voice in their head? If God really loved you, he wouldn't allow you to go through this. If God really cared for you, if he was really sufficient for you, he wouldn't ask this difficulty of you. Listen, don't believe the snake in the grass. Trust in the one who gave his life for you because he loves you. He alone is worthy of our trust. He alone never fails us or forsakes us. And if you don't know him this morning or you're not trusting him with your life, there is no better time to start that than right now. Because God loves you, Christ died for you, and rose again, and he can change your life. And I'm a living witness of that, that God can transform us from darkness into life, that God can move us from sin into grace, that God can change us from living for ourselves to living from him. God can move us from eternal death to eternal life. And when we trust him, he will be sufficient. Now, now each of these five truths that I mentioned right here from in the passage. And we're just going to take like a minute or two on each one, hopefully. But, but let's go back to the question. How do we stay empowered and content and effective in the face of adversity? How do we stay empowered, content, and effective in the face of adversity, especially interpersonal pain from other people? Because that's what Paul's dealing with. And Paul gives five answers. They're not based on psychology, because psychology tells us to look within ourselves, which is the reverse of what is true. He says, it's going to be dictated, our confidence is going to be driven by our theology. 
Because our theology is grounded in Christ and grounded in the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit to help us and guide us. So to get through difficulty, to get through the challenges, we have to trust the Lord to be sufficient for us and theology is what will drive us to be confident and to be content. So let's look at the first thing he tells us in verse 14. We need to trust the Lord to execute his judgment and his discipline on sin. The first principle is to trust the Lord to execute his judgment and his discipline on sin. When we experience personal injustice, especially a situation like Paul talks about here with with Alexander, the first innate response is to get them back somehow. It is our natural defense mechanism to repay them for what they did and, and to maybe make it a little bit worse, just for kicks. But never will that reaction honor the Lord because it's about us getting our justification and our revenge rather than the Lord. And he is the only one that is qualified and has the right to do that. When somebody wounds you, when somebody hurts you, like Alexander did to Paul, the, the first response must not be, well, i got to figure out a way to get them back. God says in Romans 12, 9, Vengeance is mine. I will repay it, says the Lord. In other words, let me, let me bring that into the vernacular. Stay out of the way. It's not your battle. You'll mess it up if you try to fix this. Let me handle it. And you have to trust me that I will be just and I will bring glory to my name. I don't know about you, but it's pretty hard to argue against that, isn't it? I can't find a lot of legitimate reasons that would allow me to get revenge instead of allowing the Lord to get revenge. Because that's where our mind goes. That we we immediately think, well, I've got to get back at the person. And and it's easy for us, as we're saying, all right, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get the revenge, but I would certainly like to be part of the conversation about how that's going to happen. If, 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 if you and I can just have a little chat, I can give you some advice on, on how you can get back at that person. And, and it would bring me, Lord, just some great satisfaction to be able to be in the conversation. Can we do that? Come on, how many know that's true, right? God says, I don't need your help. I know how to do it. Alexander had clearly done Paul wrong. He had damaged his credibility. He had damaged his witness. He had definitely challenged his teaching and tried to hurt the advance of the gospel. I can't imagine anything that would have hurt Paul more. He was not a pushover intellectually, physically, or personally. He got in Peter's face in Acts 15 and says, Peter, you're doing the wrong thing. You're being wimpy. You're you're not standing for the gospel. You're allowing the Jews to tell you what to do. And you need to cut it out. Little Paul, I think he was shorter than Peter. And and he just gets right in Peter's face. Hey, Peter, you stop it. So Paul wasn't intimidated by anybody. So when Alexander heard him, I'm sure his humanity said, oh, it's on now. But look at his words. Here is maturity, personally and spiritually. 
Alexander the coppersmith, just so you guys know who I'm talking about. Alexander the coppersmith. He did me much harm. Look at the next phrase. But the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And then he says to Timothy, listen, while the Lord's doing that, Timothy, watch your back. Don't be misled. Don't be persuaded. He's going to come after you and he's going to say the teaching of God is incorrect, that the word of God is incorrect. Timothy, guard your heart and mind. Listen, if there was ever a time, let me rephrase that. Is there ever a time when the Lord will not defend his word? Is there ever a time when the Lord will not defend his gospel? If somebody's standing against the word of God, don't you think the Lord will say, listen, the word is Jesus Christ. He came in flesh, and I am going to defend that with everything I have. I'm not going to allow you to defame my word. I'm not going to allow you to oppose my word. I'm going to defend that. So we stand strong for the Lord, and then we allow the Lord to stand strong against people who are hurting his word. Second, verse 17, second word of counsel is to find strength in the presence of the Lord. Now, had he been with a large group of believers... Paul would have been empowered to stand up to Alexander's challenge because it's easier to defend our convictions when other people are standing with us, right? It's easier to to defend what we believe when there's a group of people that believes the same way. That's the strength of this body this morning. We don't have to live out our faith on our own. We're not standing here and praising the Lord in a huge crowd of atheists. We're not studying where people are threatening our lives because we're holding a Bible. This is a large group of people who know the Lord, love the Lord, and trust the Lord, and we get to worship together, and that's a wonderful thing. But Paul didn't have that advantage at this point. He's alone. Only Luke is there with him. He keeps saying to Timothy, Timothy, come on, I need a visit. Come before winter. Get my coke, uh, a cloak. Br- bring some books. Bring Mark with you. Come on, I, I need I need a personal visit from you. And Timothy at this point is so gun shy, he, he's completely reticent. There should have been hundreds of spiritual children there to encourage Paul and defend Paul and to go to the to the judicial council and say, You got it wrong. Set this man free. He's speaking things that are changing our lives. Instead, what happens? It says everybody deserted him. But look at the next phrase. In my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. There's grace in his heart. But the Lord, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. How many know that the Lord's defense is far better than our friend's defense? I love that sentence. Because it shows the overwhelming power and presence of the Lord. No matter what we're dealing with, no matter how isolated we feel, no matter how nasty somebody's been to us, the Lord will stand with us. He is not going anywhere. He is not too busy. He's not got too many things on his plate to come alongside us and comfort us and strengthen us. And we need to take confidence in that this morning. Some of you are dealing with some very serious stuff this morning. But you know what? The Lord is standing with you. You're dealing with pain, heartache, physical trauma, divorce, struggling over decisions, not having wisdom, whatever the case may be, the Lord is standing with you. 
And any time we can intentionally put ourselves in the presence of the Lord, it is so powerful. That is why in October we are going to start a weekly prayer meeting and we're going to get in the presence of the Lord every week. I mean, we're just going to get before His face and say, Lord, help us. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Come on now, uh, this is not for church attendance. We don't even count how many people are here. But, but don't forsake the assembling of the Lord together because you need it. Some of you may not have been in church for months and months. I'm not being critical in saying that. I'm delighted that you're here. And I want to encourage you to come back on Wednesday and then come back on Sunday. You know why? Because you need the spiritual encouragement as much as I do. Don't forsake this place. Don't forsake being with other believers because it's hard out there on our own. And Paul says, I would crave, I would crave to be talking to a group of believers and having a prayer meeting and praising God. I I crave that. But Timothy, I'm by myself. But you know what? The Lord's here. And that's all I need. I'm never going to be with the church again. But the Lord stood by me. People deserted me. The Lord stood by me. Look at the third thought quickly. Verse 17. Know that the Lord turns what is meant for evil to good. Know that the Lord turns what is meant for evil to good. The enemy tried to vigorously attack and undermine the word of God through Alexander, but the Lord stopped it. So much of the battle in the early church was related to false teaching and to to pushing back against the word. Now, why does the devil attack that way? Because he knows it's the truth. And he wants to stop the truth from penetrating people's hearts and minds. So this opposition by Alexander could have been very detrimental. But the Lord uses Paul, even alone, to confront him and to stand firm for the gospel. And not only did that justify Paul's ministry, but look at the text. Even more importantly, the Lord used it to advance the gospel even more prominently. Paul says here, because of the Lord's help, Because the Lord stood with me, even though everybody abandoned me, the proclamation of the gospel was fully accomplished. Key adjective there. It was fully accomplished, and many more Gentiles now, because of the opposition, have been able to hear the word of God and the truth about Jesus Christ, both now and in the future. And if you don't know that verse is true, just tell yourself, we're a group of Gentiles sitting here in Racine, Wisconsin, studying his word. The gospel advanced. Oh, Alexander hurt me, and he did me a lot of harm, and he stood against the gospel. Timothy, watch yourself. He is a dangerous man. But let me tell you, the Lord was with me, and God used that opposition and that trial to advance the gospel. Paul talks about it more in Philippians 1, when he says, because I'm under arrest. And at that point, he was under house arrest, where he was chained to two guards all day long in the emperor's palace. And he said, this has actually been great because I got two guys chained to me all day in four-hour shifts and they have to listen to me and guess what I talk about. (laughs) Paul was so persuasive and so constant in talking to them about the Lord that the emperor said, we're going to have to shift the guards more often because they're becoming persuaded. Can you imagine that perspective? And Paul says, how else would I have gotten into the palace? 
the, these, these guards wouldn't have come to an evangelistic meeting in the town square. So this is great. I'm here for the furtherance of the gospel. I'm here so these guys that are on four-hour shifts with me, I get to talk to them, witness them, four hours a day. And they're so aggravated by it in the palace that they're shifting the guards more often. But you know what? That doesn't stop me. I don't need four hours. I need four minutes. Shows the power and the authority. Listen now, very carefully. It shows the power and authority of the Lord over the devil's plans. That the Lord constantly turns aside evil and turns it for good. And we need to be confident in that this morning. Not wavering in our trust, but calmly resting in the Lord and waiting patiently for Him. If you are in a trial this morning... You need to claim Psalm 37, 7, which says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him, because He is about to do a work. And He is going to use your circumstance for good. Look at the fourth thought, verse 18. Understand that the refining process is to build our faith. The refining process is to build our faith. Why did the apostle possibly have to learn about trust at this point? He wrote half the New Testament. Uh, you're telling me at the end of Paul's life as he's sitting in jail and he's written multiple books of the New Testament and he's, and he's witnessed to thousands and thousands and people have gotten saved and he's sent out teams of people and he's got people all over Asia Minor that are setting up churches. You mean to tell me this guy needs to learn about trust? He's one of the greatest evangelists of all time. He's one of the greatest apologists of all time. But he says these disappointments and these challenges are the Lord's method of still teaching me to trust Him completely. And Paul says, here's my conclusion. The Lord will keep me safe and He will rescue me. Apparently there was more Paul needed to learn about trust. And he says, because this has happened, I trust Him more. That is the constant training of the Lord in our lives that we would know Him more every day, that we know about Him more every day, that we would trust Him more every day, and that we would call on Him more every day. More of Him, less of me, until there's none of me. And Paul says, I've learned what it is to trust the Lord. James says, when you fall into difficulty, count it all joy that your face being tested because it produces endurance. And endurance has the goal of making you perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Listen, the fire of refining doesn't always feel like that, does it? That, that when I'm dealing with this difficulty, that that's making me perfect and complete. But God says, the more you learn to think like I do, and the more you call on my name, and the more you ask for wisdom, because you lack it, I will give it liberally. I will show you what you need. And there's nothing better. Last thought, verses 15 and 17. Recognize that learning to be content is designed to educate and encourage other people later. Learning to be content in the Lord is designed to educate and encourage other people later. Paul writes in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in all things, whether I'm struggling or abounding, to be content. And that is the word that is key to this spiritual principle. I have learned it. Refining, testing, shaping is educational. 
It's to teach us about the mercy of God. It's to teach us about our own insufficiency. It's to teach us about God's goodness and his faithfulness and his mercy and to show us our need to trust in him. The promise out of that is not wealth. It's not a lack of problems. It's not perfect relationships. It's not constant happiness. God says, I'm not designing you to have those things. I want you to learn to be content in everything. Contentment is a mix of peace, confidence, security, hope, and joy. When you and I reach that place in our spiritual walk where we have a perfect blend of confidence, peace, security, hope, and joy, that's where we will be pleasing the Lord. But he says that's only learned in the crucible of testing. That's why it says in Proverbs, and I'm done, don't despise testing. Don't despise the challenge of your faith. Let it have its perfect work. Why? Because it's not just for you. What you're learning now and whatever you're going through, what I'm learning now and whatever we're going through, will be used to teach other people and encourage other people later on because the Lord never wastes anything in your experience. You're going through a divorce, God's going to use that to minister to people that go through a divorce later. You're going through a job loss, God's going to use that when you get back on your feet to talk to people about how sufficient he was. You you, you go through money issues right now, God's teaching you dependence so you can minister to other people that are going through that later. You're dealing with cancer, God's going to deal with that and he's going to heal you and then he's going to help you minister to people with cancer. And listen, I can't talk to people with cancer with any experience because I don't have it. I didn't understand how to talk to people about divorce until my in-laws got divorced and then I understood it. The, the things we experience are designed to strengthen people later. So don't get bitter and depressed and lose hope. Say to yourself, God's refining me and shaping me to be more like him so I can help other people later. That's the gospel. That's, that's what God does. And that's what Paul says to Timothy. I'm alone, but the Lord's with me. People have hurt me, God will deal with it. The things that I'm learning now are designed to strengthen my faith so I can help you, Timothy, because I know your struggle. I've been there. And Timothy, you're going to get through it. Stand strong. Stay close to the Lord. And God will use you. Amen? Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray this morning that you would encourage us I pray you would strengthen us. Lord, those that are hurting this morning, those that are struggling, those that are in a trial, those that are facing uncertainty, pray right now your Holy Spirit would be the paraclete and come alongside, would strengthen them, give them the knowledge that this time of testing is to make them more like you. Lord, those of us that have been through it, that we would stand as an encouragement to them and pray for them and help them and spur them on to love and good works. Lord, thank you for the body of believers. Thank you for the relationship that we have with each other, that we're not alone. Even when we're alone, Lord, you stand with us. But you've given us other believers to be a strength and a support. And I pray, Lord, that this would not be a week of discouragement, 
This would not be a week of bitterness and anger and frustration. But that this would be a week where we see praise the Lord. He is working and he is faithful and he is sufficient. And I'm going to trust him with all I have. Lord, that's what you call us to. And you never fail us. You never forsake us. You never abandon us. You are always present and always faithful and always gracious. And we love you for that this morning. We thank you for that. We praise you with our hearts. Lord, continue, we pray, to be sufficient for our lives and to strengthen us in this battle. And Lord, we will trust you with all that we have and give you praise as we tell other people about how good you are. We thank you and praise you this morning for your word. Now, Lord, graft it into our hearts and encourage us in the days ahead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing together. We're sing an old song that talks about the faithfulness of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the 